Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning in God's house as we prepare to hear from God through his word. And I just want to give thanks to the Lord for several things this morning. One of them is travel mercies. I had the privilege of slipping away for a couple of days and going to see my mother in Arizona. I hadn't seen her since my middle son graduated from college in May of 2022. And so we, it was time. I got away for a couple of days to see how she's doing down there. And mom is a snowbird from Minnesota. She spends six months in Minnesota and six months in Arizona and has two full houses in each place and keeps things going. And uh, But it was just fun to reconnect and to be with her and have that time together because we just don't know how many more opportunities we're going to have. And I'm thankful for just a good uh, staff team as I was thinking about what we have going on here and things that are happening and programs and projects and all these things. Just what a, what a great staff team I have to serve with as they keep things going and going well. And I'm thankful for the beauty of the gospel that just was so crystal clear yesterday and this morning as I had the privilege of being with Carl Johansson and Denny behind the bedside of Gail Yesterday was uh, really, in a sense, a worship service. We're just singing hymns one after the other and sharing scripture and prayers. And she was, she was conscious, she was interacting, and she had just, she had just the glow of, of God on her face as she was looking forward to going to be with Jesus. And then as I was with her a few moments before church began this morning, it's obvious that her home going is very imminent. But she longs to be with Jesus, and that's what we all long for. And so our prayer is now for Carl and for the family as they walk through this difficult time that the hope of the gospel, we've just said, what is our hope in life and death? We said, Christ alone, Christ alone. And do we believe that? Then if we sing it and we believe it, then we should act upon it and say, yes, Lord, in all of these circumstances, you're enough. And um, I told the elders, I told the staff team that Gail Johansson has been a gift to all of us. She has just taught us so much about who the Lord is, her affection, affectionate love for the Lord. And she has taught us how to die well. Just being content in the Lord right to the end. And so, just continue to uphold that family, the testimony, the legacy that Gail is going to leave, but also the fact that there's still work to do. <laughs> there's still people to meet and, and greet and get to know and, and bring in the gospel and disciple them. And so we continue to persevere knowing that the goodbyes in the Lord are just temporary. They're more a see you later than a goodbye. And we know that one day we'll all be together around the throne of grace. If you haven't had a chance, I encourage you to turn your cell phones off. Make sure they're not interrupting us during our time this morning as we engage in the word. And let me take this time to say good morning to those of you joining us online. We're grateful for this medium of technology that allows us to meet together. And wherever you might be now, we encourage you to join us in our study of God's word. Please receive the greetings of those of us present here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to studying the word of God with you wherever you might be. You know, the African impala is truly an amazing and athletic animal. It can jump to a height of 10 feet straight up, and it can also in one leap go 30 feet. And so it would seem that we would never see such a creature in a zoo anywhere. After all, how do you contain such a magnificent creature? Well, as it turns out, zookeepers have discovered that an impala can be kept in an enclosure of a solid wall that's only three feet high. And the reason why is that an impala will not jump if it cannot see where its feet will land. 
It's capable of great achievement, but it's blocked by its self-imposed limits and lack of faith in what it cannot see. As author John Emmons says, faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And with faith, we are freed from the flimsy enclosures of life that only fear allows to entrap us. It might be that God is asking us and challenging us to do great things. And by his spirit, we could do great things, but we have allowed an arbitrary wall of three feet to keep us from taking those leaps of faith and, and stretching out our faith in the Lord. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ bring another sign of judgment against the people of Israel. They had received so much, the law, the prophets, the temple, the priesthood, yet they did not produce the fruit of faith and repentance, for they did not recognize the Messiah when he came. And the disciples are going to see this act of judgment and the dramatic results that it brings. And so they're going to ask, hey, can we have similar power? And Jesus says, you can if you have faith and you meet the right conditions. But the question is, what kind of faith and in whom is that faith to be placed? We've arrived at our time in the study of the gospel according to Matthew, to chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. And in honor of God and his holy word, I invite you to stand as I read our passage for this morning. The truthful and holy and edifying word of God says, In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord given to us this morning to instruct us on the proper nature of faith. May he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. And let us pray. God and our Father, as we turn to you in this solemn and yet sacred moment, we thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you that down through the centuries, your gospel has gripped lives in one generation after the other, and the truth of eternal life has resonated in the hearts of so many. And as that truth resonates in our hearts today, Father, would you help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see, and may the word be open to us, and may our hearts just grip it and grab it so that we would know that we've met with the living God this morning. For Father, we are needy people. And we're dependent upon you to do the work that only you can do through your spirit, and that is to teach us the truths of your word. And so would you do that this morning as we seek to honor our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose holy name we pray, amen. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus cleansed the temple and then retired for the night in Bethany. And now we see that he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And we see that Matthew, once again, is emphasizing the main point of the story, 
but he's leaving out some of the supporting details that drive the story forward. Again, Matthew writing to the Jews who would be more familiar with what is happening in Jerusalem, more familiar with the geography and topography of Jerusalem, leaves out some details that other gospel writers like Mark add in because Mark is writing to a larger Gentile and Roman audience who would not have that knowledge about Jerusalem. So Mark actually records the event that we're looking at this morning in two phases, both before and after Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. And so he fills in some of the chronological details that Matthew does not have. Matthew is telescoping the event. He's showing how this points to Jesus coming as prophet and priest and king. And Matthew ties together three different events. Jesus coming in on a donkey as the king who is coming to conquer sin and death. He is the prophet who, who judges, as it were, the temple. He's the king who can bring judgment even over nature and over a fig tree. And so let's dive into our passage this morning. If you've not already had a chance to do so, to do so turn to your sermon outline. Now, it got done very late in the week. That's why it's a separate insert this week. But you have your sermon outline in the bulletin. You can follow along there or on your church app. Well, we say our first major point is Jesus judges a barren tree. Jesus judges a barren tree. Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem after spending the night in Bethany. And we're told that he's hungry and he, he notices a fig tree along the way. And the Gospel of Mark points out to us that this was not the normal season for figs. And that was typical for the great majority of fig trees. But there was at least one type of fig tree that did produce what was called early figs. And perhaps that is the type of tree that we're dealing with this morning. Figs, of course, were an important part of the diet uh, and of the daily life in Israel, as they still are in the Middle East today. They're all over the market square, and several types were available in abundance throughout the harvest season. But there was at least one type that was available in the off-season, but it was not considered quite as good. It was enough to kind of hold them, carry them over, if you will, until the real figs came. And so we have this story of a fig tree, and we begin with a hunger unfulfilled. And our text begins. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Now clearly, Jesus was hungry. There's a physical hunger that is here. But Jesus never does anything by accident, and so there's more here than meets the eye. I don't think this text is just given us simply to show us that Jesus didn't have enough for breakfast that morning, and he's already ready for his mid-morning snack. I don't think it's intended to give us insight into what his daily diet was in the morning as he prepared for the day. Jesus is preparing us for a judgment that is to come upon a temple that is recalcitrant against the Lord, against a stubborn priesthood and a rebellious city. Yes, he was physically hungry, but I think he's pointing to something even greater, a spiritual hunger. You know, in the Gospels, often physical signs, physical symbols point to deeper spiritual truth. So physical darkness becomes a sign of spiritual darkness. And in this case, I think physical hunger is pointing to a greater spiritual hunger. Jesus knows that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, would know that in the Old Testament, a fig tree often represented the good life that Israel was to experience if they obeyed God and kept his commandments. The fig tree was a sign of fruitfulness. And the prophets used it as a symbol to represent the kind of life they would have if they lived according to the ways of God. 
You may recall when you're reading through the Old Testament, you came across this expression, and each man will sit under his own fig tree. A sign of the blessing that would come as people would obey God and keep his covenant promises. This, this was to be a sign of blessing and favor. But fig trees often were used in the Old Testament as well as signs of judgment. So, for example, in Jeremiah 24, in the first 10 verses, the prophet is given a vision of fig trees, good figs and bad figs, and it serves as a sort of parable about what was happening with the people of God. The good figs are those people who were blessed of God because they obeyed God and accepted his judgment upon the land and went into exile in Babylon. And while they were in Babylon, they were considered good figs and they were to be a blessing to the land in which they lived. They were to be a blessing to the city while they were in exile. But the bad figs are those who refused to leave the land. They're those that refused to either they wanted to either stay in the city of Jerusalem or they were trying to go to Egypt. And so the parable of the fig tree is showing two types of people. Those that are obeying God, those that are not. We see another example in the prophet Hosea in chapter 9, where the Lord is recounting his relationship with the people of Israel. And in chapter, chapter 9, verse 10, he says that he saw Israel as the first fruit on the fig tree in its season as God looked out upon his people and it was leading them through the wilderness he saw them as this fig tree a promise of a greater harvest to come and so in both cases I think we have an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament truth a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit now Jesus of course would have known about these stories a good rabbi and teacher that he was he knew the scriptures well. He knew what was in the law and the prophets. He knew what the covenant conditions and commitments were. And I think there's yet one more story that is behind this enactment of judgment that we see this morning. And we find it in Micah chapter 7. In these first six verses, particularly in verses 2 through 5, God is describing the wickedness of the people of Israel. And he lists their sins, bloodshed and lying and bribery and false religion and that these behaviors affected not only the relationship between neighbors and in this passage they're told not to even trust their neighbors because the wickedness had risen so high but it was affecting relationships within the family where members became divided one against another and so this behavior was so wicked the Lord says this is not what I wanted what he wanted was in, in Micah chapter 7, verse 1. And listen to these words as God speaks through the prophet. Woe to me, for I have, be, I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe figs that my soul desires. And God is speaking through the prophet and saying, I long for there to be this blessing of this first ripe fruit to fulfill, as it were, a spiritual hunger that I had, and all I saw was wickedness among the people. Jesus comes outside of Jerusalem and approaches Jerusalem, and he sees this fig tree, and he sees nothing. And why did Yahweh see nothing in the days of Micah? Because verse 2 tells us the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no upright among mankind. 
Jesus has been living as the Messiah for three years, teaching about the righteousness of God, the coming judgment, saying how he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is longing to see fruit take place in the land. He's longing to see the results of repentance. He's longing to see those first ripe figs. But he sees nothing. Instead, he sees a deceptive fruit. A deceptive fruit. We pick up our passage in verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. Now notice the word nothing but only leaves. Around the time of the Passover, leaves would begin to appear on some of the fig trees, but they would not yet produce any fruit except for that rare early type of fig. And this one tree apparently stood out to Jesus as he's walking along the road. And the fact that he went up to it meant it probably was just a tree on its own by the side of the road, not on anyone's property. And he goes up to it because it's full of leaves. But it had no fruit. It gave all the appearance of being mature, all the appearance of having fruit. But it promised something it could not deliver. You know, we've been warned from an early age and various sources to beware of false advertising. Be careful of what comes on an ad that pops up on a web page or what you might get in the mail or a video that appears on YouTube that promises you the moon. Now beware of false advertising. And there are many products that promise far more than they can possibly deliver. Well, none of us like to fall victims of false advertising. But in the first century, Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, there was false advertising that was going on. The regular daily work of the temple had the appearance of religious and righteous behavior. There were offerings that were being given. There were sacrifices that were offered. There were prayers that were being lifted. There were candles that had incense wafting to the heavens. There was reading of scripture. There was teaching of the word. But it was not authentic as we have seen. It was not honoring to the Lord, and so the Lord has to go in and cleanse it. As we've seen, by the time of Jesus, the operations of the temple had fallen into various types of corruption and greed and hypocrisy. We've seen that the result of what they were doing was that they thought they were offering promise and favor to the Lord, but in fact it's the opposite. They're blocking the Gentiles from coming and praying in the place that was designated to them. The din and activity of what was happening in the temple grounds was interfering with the worship that was going on. People are being exploited as the priesthood gets very rich at the expense of others. It had all the outward appearance of bearing fruit unto the Lord, but in fact it bore none. That generation that was privileged to see the Messiah... To see the Messiah in word and action, to hear his promises, to hear his teachings, to see his actions, to see the miracles, was the very same generation that despised and rejected him and put him to death. And they ignored the prophetic warnings that Jesus had given, and they would pay a terrible price as a consequence. Oh, friends, let us take heed when we have the warnings of Scripture given to us. The Apostle Paul when he was writing to the church in Corinth, said it was not enough that they had many displays of religious activity, many displays of spiritual gifts, 
spiritual fervor in their worship. It was not enough because they were not honoring the Lord and what they were doing. And so he takes two letters to criticize almost everything they are doing to teach them in a deeper way the gospel and the difference that the gospel should make in their lives and their worship. And church history tells us that this has been a common temptation of the people of God in many situations in every generation. Jesus was looking for fruit in first century Israel, but he didn't see any. He knows that the fruit of the tree is the result of the root of the tree. And good fruit comes from a tree, a person that is grounded in the word of God and displays the righteousness of God more and more in his life and day by day, detail by detail, obedience and living out what God has given us to do. This tree that Jesus came upon symbolized the people of its day. From outward appearance, it looked like it was doing grandiose, but it had no fruit. There were only leaves. And so after we see this deceptive fruit, of course, it's going to get a response from Jesus, the prophet. And from there, we get a fruitlessness curse, a fruitlessness curse. We continue in verse 19. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Jesus curses the tree and it withers. And notice again his divine power, his divine ability. We've seen again and again in the gospel according to Matthew that Jesus, who is the agent of creation, has power over nature. We've seen that Jesus, as the Lord of creation, has power over sickness and death. With a word, he can heal, whether he's present or the person that is sick is far away. With a word, he can cast out a demon. With a word, he can give the commands of God. With a word, he can bring judgment on a fig tree. What a powerful sign and symbol of judgment. For often in the Old Testament, the drying up or cursing of a fig tree or any other tree was seen as a sign of divine judgment. You can look in places like Isaiah 34, or Jeremiah 8, or Joel 1. And so... There are some who look at this passage and they say this is out of character with Jesus. I mean, he seems to be having some type of temper tantrum. Maybe he's a little bit hangry because his mid-morning breakfast has been interrupted. Is that really what's going on here? No. Jesus knows what he's doing all the time and all of his words and all of his actions, wherever he goes, whatever he does, he is performing an act of judgment against Israel. He's warning them of the judgment to come because of their willful disobedience to the ways of God. I mean, just think about the larger context. The religious establishment is against him and has rejected him, whether it's the scribes or Pharisees or Sadducees or the chief priests. And so he overturns the table. And as we saw last week, that word has almost a double meaning because it can also mean the overturning of a, an existing system, which in fact what he was doing. He was overturning the sacrificial system. He was overturning the priesthood because after all, now that he's come, those things are no longer necessary. The people of the first century who saw these things should have responded in faith, obedience, holiness, discipleship. Instead, there was rejection Hostility, despising, loathing, 
of the Lord. I think it's clear for us to see that this fruitless tree represents hypocrisy. It pretended to be one thing, but actually was something very different. And of course, this is always displeasing to the Lord, the pretension of living one way and doing something else. God is a God who requires integrity in our lives. The fact that what we do, what we say, what we think, what is in our heart, what our decisions should be closer and closer to one another so that there is a, a wholeness and an integrity in how we live our lives. The impact of the gospel on a person's life is that there will be fruit. There will be the type of fruit that we see in places like Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or fruit like we see in places like John 15, if you abide in me and I abide in you, will produce much fruit, showing my Father that you are one of his disciples. There'll be souls that come to Christ. There'll be disciples that are being made. There'll be spiritual growth. There'll be confession of sin. They'll be putting to death sinful behaviors. There'll be maturity. There'll be greater conformity to who God really is. God expects fruit in the lives of his people. Growth is normal in the Christian life. Now, of course, at this point, we need to remind ourselves, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Received by faith alone. And Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There is no room in our salvation for boasting of what we do, who we are, what we have achieved. It is all based on what God has done. However, there is an application and an implication of that. The grace that saves us is also the grace that sanctifies us. That is, makes us more and more like Christ, becomes more and more holy in word, action, deed, plan, thought, decision. And so while we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is never a grace that is alone. There's always the fruit of repentance. There's always the fruit of the new birth. There's always the growing obedience because of what God is doing in our lives. I think William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, captures it well. He talks about Faith and works as being, as it were, two legs of a person where you have faith and then works and faith and works and faith and works. And pretty soon it's hard to distinguish one from the other because one is the outflow of the other. God is looking to us and he expected fruit. He looked at that generation and he expected fruit. They had his law. They had the priesthood. They had the temple. They had the prophets. The Messiah had come. Fruitfulness was the expected sign of the covenant. And they failed. But in Christ, there's the new covenant. And if we're in Christ, we have Christ indwelling within us. Christ, who is through the new birth, has now placed the Holy Spirit who lives within us and has placed us in the body of Christ. And so as we have Christ dwelling within us and the power of the Holy Spirit and we have the completion of his revelation, there is fruit that is expected of us as we study and read and teach and understand and apply and live out. True faith and true repentance shows itself in authenticity 
and fruit that remains. And so the warning again goes all throughout the Gospels, but continues even in the writings of the, of the apostles, of the difference between merely professing faith and actually possessing faith. And possessing faith, where we have a personal, intimate relationship with the living God, will result in spiritual fruit. And so if we are in Christ, it will show itself in the way we talk, the way we walk. Now, it's going to be different for us. We all have different combination of experiences and education and interaction and people around us but it will show itself over time in patterns of growth sometimes uneven but always in a consistent way there will be growth you should look more like Christ today than you did five years ago and if not we need to heed the warning of Jesus himself who said to mere pro professors of faith, but not possessors of faith. Depart from me, I never knew you, you practicers of lawlessness. We cling to the righteousness of Christ. We claim our identity in Christ, our unity in Christ, but then also we claim the fruit that comes with it as we walk in obedience to him and his word. It's not enough just to have a religious ritual or a practice or a tradition or experience. We need to be rooted in the word of God that will produce holiness, the fruit that God expects. Jesus saw no fruit in that generation. It's as if he was saying to them, this shows that you truly are not with God. And because you are disobedient, unrepentant, you will receive judgment. So he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. So over and over again, the prophets plead with the people of God, repent and return to the Lord, repent and plead to the Lord. But in the New Testament, it takes on this different hue. Today is the day of salvation. For we know not how much longer we have. And there is a time when the patience of God will run out. And there is no possibility of reversing his judgment when it comes. It's a stark warning to Israel given to Israel from the true Israelite, the true son of Israel, the true son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has judged a barren tree. And from there we see our second major point, which is Jesus and the prayer of faith. Jesus and the prayer of faith. Verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. So Jesus curses a fig tree with a word, and it withers instantly. The disciples are amazed. They marvel. And I marvel that they marveled. Because are, are these not the same group of men that have already seen all of the miracles of Christ? Have they not seen the multiplication of the bread and the fish twice in Matthew? Have they not seen the miracles that he has performed, giving sight to the blind and strength to the lame, the casting out of the demons, the walking on the water, the calming of the winds and the waves? They've seen all that, yet they're still learning about who Jesus is. And as is their want, as a result, they ask the wrong question. How did this fig tree wither at once? They're amazed, but they missed the point. The point is not how. They've already seen enough power to know that God has, Jesus has the ability to do all this. The point is not how, but why. Jesus never does anything just because. There's always a purpose, an intention, a teaching moment behind everything that he does. 
They don't ask why. Instead, they ask how. Perhaps they're still thinking, not yet fully understanding who Christ is. They're thinking along the lines of, well, who of us will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And jockeying for position about who will be greater. Perhaps they're still thinking like James and John, who when they saw people that wouldn't repent, said, Lord, shall we rain down fire upon them? They want the power. They want the display of power. They're still learning what Jesus is doing. So they don't ask the right question. The how is the easy part. He's the Messiah. He has power over nature, over disease, over everything. He can do what he wants. The question is why. And so Jesus then, as he, is a, as he does, as a good teacher, knows they asked the wrong question, but he'll give them the right answer to tell them what they need to do. And so he talks about the reason for faith, faith and not doubt. The reason why he did what he did, but for faith and not doubt. And Jesus answered them, and I'm going to break this verse up into sections. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt. It's an amazing reply. Jesus is going to go on to say, you can have this same type of power in your life if the right conditions are met. But first I want to camp out just on this expression, truly I say to you. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament we have expressions like, Thus says the Lord. Or the word of the Lord came to the prophet Joel saying, or the word of the Lord came to so-and-so saying. And Jesus knows who he is, and so dozens and dozens of times in the Gospels he says, I say to you. He's claiming that prophetic and divine power because he knows where he's come from. He, know, he knows whose he is, and he knows who he is that he has the power to speak of God. So whenever you hear Jesus saying, I say to you, think in your mind, thus says the Lord, because it's that same divine authority. And he goes on and he's talking to this group of men, and in every instance of the word you, it's in the second person plural. Now, of course, that needs to be the case because he's talking to a group of people. But who is he talking to? He's talking to those that he has chosen who are going to be the leaders in the church after he leaves. The one upon whom he will build the new covenant. As Paul reminds us that our faith is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So yes, it is true. We preach the gospel because each one of us needs to repent and believe. But God, through Christ, is building a community, a new family, what Paul would call a new man, a new form of humanity. He's building a community who now identify themselves in Christ, united with Christ, belong to Christ. And so while we are called to have a personal response to the gospel, we are not called to have a merely private faith. That's not what the gospel means. God is taking people out of the families of men, bringing them into the family of God, and they are now part of a new family, a new covenant community called the church. And he is the one that has placed us in the church. He is the one that is the head of the church. He is the one that says, I am building my church. And so we're not a bunch of disconnected individuals who are just doing our own thing. 
We're part of the family of God that he himself is forming and molding and guiding and leading. And we belong to that family. That's why he's already made the comment, I'm your first family, as he challenges us that we, sometimes we have to stand even against our earthly family because the Father is calling. We need to get back to the idea of what the church has always been, which is this community, this family, this set-apart people who are journeying together through life. That's why many writers in the early church the ones that came just after the apostles said things like, it is impossible to say you love Jesus and then ignore the church. Because that's God's plan A. That's all he has. Of course, the challenge is that the church is not perfect. The challenge is the church is full of imperfect people from the pulpit to the pew and back again. But it's all that God has. And Jesus is rebuking and challenging the local churches in the New Testament. One thing he never does is give up on the church because it is his body. It is his people. It's the people he's redeemed and set apart for himself. And so as he speaks to this community of men, he says, you're going to be leading the church. You are going to be instructing the people that come after you in the ways that I am teaching you. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, there's two sides of the coin there. There is faith, which means to have confidence, trust, that leads to obedience. To have faith means to have a confident, trustful, personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, faith is personal. I have faith. Faith is personal as well because it's in a person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in a force. It's not my faith in a force. It's not my faith in some idea. It's not my faith even in my faith. It's my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who is head of the church. That confidence, that personal knowledge, that trust in the Lord of the one who said, take up your cross and follow me and continues to say, take up your cross and follow me and I will lead you to the kingdom of heaven. The opposite of that is doubt. This is to not have confidence, to not have trust, to even doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the truth of God, to doubt the ability of God. Doubt expresses itself in that early question of the enemy, did God really say? But faith says God spoke, and that settles it, and I will act upon it. Do you expect God to be at work in your life? If you're in Christ, you should. That comes with it. You have a personal relationship with the living God who is all-powerful. And if you have met with him, if you have met with Christ, you've been born again of the Spirit of God, your eyes have even been opened just a little bit to see the glimpse of his glory, then through faith in him, there is great power that is available to you and is available to us. For faith overcomes challenges. Faith overcomes challenges. Continuing in verse 21. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. What a great response. If you have faith, you will do the same thing. Now think of the larger context. The fig tree, of course, is 
referring to the people. It's a judgment on the people. Representing the Jewish leaders, the temple, the sacrifices, the old way of doing things. And I just wonder, when he says this mountain, as they're coming from, Jeru- from Bethany to go to Jerusalem, they would be on the Mount of Olives. It's very likely or possible that this is the Mount of Olives that is referred to. But if Jesus is on his way to the temple, and as he is talking to these men, in the background, they are clearly going to see the Temple Mount. And what does Jesus come to do? Fulfill all that happens on the Temple Mount. And so I think that's the mountain that is referred to here. This mountain, this temple had no longer produced the fruits of repentance because it was no longer connected to the source of truth and that temple mount would come to an end in 70 AD. To move mountains as we've already seen when we looked at it in Matthew 17, we had to deal with problems, to overcome problems. It was prophetic language. It was a parable of sorts of dealing with difficult problems and by faith in God moving them out of the way. But don't miss the picture. The gospel is there. The kingdom of heaven is there because Christ is there. And Christ has come to fulfill all that was happening on the Temple Mount. He is coming to render moot the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, the offerings, even really the importance of the city itself under the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to talk about all of these things that came before, and he said they were good because they pointed us forward. They pointed to our need for forgiveness. They pointed to our need to be at peace with God. But in all of that, Jesus is better because he is the fulfillment of it all. Whatever was good good before is great in Jesus. He came to do away with all that the temple stood for. And so these group of men as they're seeing this and as they're hearing this, they're the ones that after the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit would carry on the mantle of preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. And he's reminding them that they will do this under the power that comes from God. As they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the nations, that they will go out and command people to repent and believe and make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus has prescribed. And so, my friends, as the church prays in faith, they can see great things happening in this world. Now, of course, it's not our own power. But we can present the challenges, the difficulties, the obstacles, the troubles to the Lord and ask Him to intervene. In faith, we can say to this mountain of life, move and it will be moved because God is inviting us to Invite him into all that we are doing so that he can show his hand and show his power and show what he wants to do. And for 2,000 years, the church has been moving forward throughout the world, but there is still much work to be done. Do we have faith that it will happen? And are we willing to be an answer to the prayer as we offer it? So we might be challenged in the midst of challenges to say, well, God, I have a big problem. And at a certain level, that's a good thing to say. We recognize our need, our smallness, in comparison to the challenges of life. It's far better to say, problem, I have a big God, and pray in faith. Hudson Taylor was a man who modeled well praying 
living by faith, trusting God to meet him as his need as he was bringing the gospel to China, was used of man to unleash hundreds of missionaries who went to China and translated Bibles and preached the gospel. And he said, I, I want to live trusting in God and having him answer prayers. And his autobiography is full of incidences of one after the other in his faith in a sovereign God. God provided for him at his point of need at each time so gospel purposes would take place. But you can also read he was a real man. He struggled with difficulties, at times depression, at times sadness. He was separated from his wife for great periods of time. But he knew his Bible and he knew his God. And at one point he's writing a letter to his wife. He's talking about the problems that are before him. But rather than despairing, he said this, we have 25 cents and all of the promises of God. And if we have all the promises of God with who he is and what he can do, that is enough. If we have Christ, we can expect God to be working in our lives. So how can we live out having the face that moves mountains? The faith that moves mountains. Verse 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the first thing we see is, Prayer is a natural part of the Christian life. It's not if you pray, it's whatever you pray. We might even add the word whenever you pray. Or we might say since you pray. We're people that need to pray. Remember, we're in this living, dynamic relationship with the living God. So talk to him. That's what prayer is. And sometimes we, the retort comes back and says, well, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? I said, that's the wrong question to ask. If God is sovereign, why don't we pray? Because the same sovereign God who has ordained the ends has ordained the means, and he has commanded us to pray and say, ask, and I'll give you the nations. Ask, and I will provide for you. And he involves us in there through our prayers as part of his provision and protection. And so I pray because he's in control. Because if he's not in control, then why pray? But because he's in control and he will work all things well for the purpose of his will, he invites us to pray, commands us to pray. And as we pray, he enters into that prayer. He receives them. He answers them so that he is glorified. Because prayer is not just an act. I keep emphasizing this again and again because sometimes we fall back into the pattern of religion. It's not just a question of saying my prayers. It's having this living trusting, personal conversation with God on an ongoing basis. We can talk with God anytime about anything, and he hears. And he continually invites us and says, come and fellowship with me. Now, there's no inherent power in my prayer. There's no inherent power in your prayer. The power is in the one to whom we pray. It's not the intensity or the fervency or the emotional state of our prayers it's the power and the ability of the one to whom we pray. The prophets of Baal were stomping and storming and yelling and cheering and shouting and cutting themselves and the blood was flowing and they cried out to a God who didn't exist and didn't hear. And Elijah just stood up and said, God, respond. And he did. When you pray, Jesus says, believe and receive. When you pray, believe me, trust me, believe I can do this. The focus should not be on us at all. 
the focus should be on the God who is prayer, the God who has the ability to intervene and to act. A little faith and a big God accomplishes much. So how can we do this in a more practical way? When we arrive at a point on Monday morning or Thursday afternoon or whenever it might be, how can we pray in such a way that we know our prayers are heard? How can we pray in such a way that we know that it's honoring to the Lord? How can we pray in such a way that we're actually pleasing Him in our prayers? I'm just going to give just a few simple points here. There is so much more that could be said. But just a couple of things that I have found to be helpful in my own personal life as I pray. And the first thing is, believe in Jesus. And understand what believe means. Trust. Confidence. Faith. He's going to do it. This is not some type of I name it and I claim it kind of thing. This is God saying in our relationship, I hear what you say. And I want to respond in a way that will bring glory to myself and good to my people. So if you have faith, it means if you believe in Jesus. And it might be that it's at this point that we need to repent and say, Father, forgive me. I have not believed as I should have. I have an intellectual faith. I have a partial understanding of faith. Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. But secondly, as we believe in Jesus, we trust him, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, this is not just something we just add on at the end of our prayer as if we have to do it or the prayer hasn't been said. To pray in the name of Jesus means to invite all that he is, all of his power, truth, promises, abilities, and say, bring that power to bear in this situation and mobilize the, what needs to be mobilized so that prayers are answered and you are glorified. And it's that type of prayer that Jesus invites us into as he instructed the disciples in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you pray in the name of Jesus, we're inviting all of the power of the Godhead to be involved in the situation so that the, the Godhead is glorified, that mountains are moved. So then we pray, thy will be done. It's a prayer that many of us learned early on in childhood. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the prayers that God hears, that God answers, because of the ones that push forward his glory, that push forward his kingdom purposes, that show his hand and his greatness. And so we pray according to his will. Because frankly, we don't always know how to pray. We don't always know what is God's will or what is the best way to pray in this situation. And so sometimes our prayers can get pretty small, pretty petty. Father, help me to know how to pray. So I can pray that your will be done and pray according to your will. And lastly, and I know this is a quick flyover. We'll have a chance to pick some of these things up perhaps in coming weeks. But seek God's glory above all. We don't ask just to get our wants and desires fulfilled, that we might be satisfied, that we might show who we think we should be. We can ask anything of God, but we cannot dictate how he responds. And if you have faith, which is this living, vital, personal relationship in Jesus Christ, it implies a level of maturity and understanding. Not to pray for just selfish things, but for that which will bring glory to God and good for his people 
and bring out the fulfillment of his plan. Now, there's so much more that could be said. A few years ago, before COVID interrupted everything, I was in a multi-week Sunday school class teaching the things in prayer. Maybe I need to bring that up again. I think we all long to have a, 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 a more vital, ongoing prayer relationship with the Lord. But these are some things that at least can remind us again of what it is when we pray to a living God as his servants. But let's, let's wrap up our time for this morning. In his final week, as Jesus is moving through Jerusalem and as he's going to fulfill and accomplish the plan of God, he's going to move several mountains. He's going to move out the mountain of spiritual darkness and death. He's going to move out the mountain of unrighteousness and hypocrisy. He'll move out the mountain of disobedience and belief. He will conquer sin and death and fulfill the plan of God. And because he will conquer, we will win and be saved. We are secure in the victor because of what he will do in this final week on earth. And then if we're in Christ, we have this wonderful privilege and ability to show what we know. The Jewish leaders were not producing the fruit of righteousness. And they were only fooling themselves. They were not fooling the Lord. And they paid the price of judgment. We who are in Christ and walk with him and allow him to work in and through us, we'll see him work in and through us and the joy that comes with just walking with God. But our lives will be examined one day. That tree was examined with an abundance of leaves and found to have no fruit. We will be examined one day. What will the fruit of our lives reveal? It's a good question for us to ponder as we continue to go forward, as we continue to look at what Jesus is going to do to fulfill all so that we can be in right standing before God. But we've seen a lot so far in, in Matthew 21. Jesus comes into the city with a great crowd of celebration singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. And even the, the children are crying out. And Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and he says, I'm bringing in all things new and I'm healing the sick. And he comes to a tree and he brings judgment. He says, but there's great power available to you if you have faith in me. And so as we summarize what we have seen so far in Matthew 21, let us praise this king. Hosanna to the son of David. The highest praise. Let us please this king by showing the fruit of repentance and truth in joyful obedience to his word. Let us pray to this king. And then let us go out and proclaim this king. Next week, the authority of Jesus will be challenged. And he's not going to back down. He's going to show him where the authority came from. And because he stood firm in his authority, he empowers us to stand firm in what he has given us to do as well. But until then, till we look at the next part of Matthew 21, what are some lessons that we can take with us? Because Jesus wants to see fruit in our lives, we repent daily and ask him to produce in us the fruit of righteousness. Until we have reached perfection, which is not this side of heaven, there will always be things over which we need to repent. Always things in our lives, in our thinking, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions that need to be turned over to the Lord and put to death. Because Jesus is the judge, we also cling to him as our righteousness. 
and hope so that we will be declared righteous in his sight. We sang that song so beautifully at the beginning. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Because Jesus calls us to have faith in him, we will not doubt his ability to lead us and to provide for us. And we turn to him and say, show us what you can do. Because we are commanded to pray, we ask him to help us to pray. To pray for what glorifies him and provides for our good. As we do these things, we will be like that tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in season. May it be that the Lord works in all of us, that we would be this beautiful harvest of fruitful trees for his eternal glory and for our good. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful that even when you speak to us in language that is direct and difficult, you do it with mercy because you're continually drawing us closer to yourself. And so, Father, this morning, as you have been speaking to us and reminding us of those things in our lives that do not yet have your favor and approval, we turn from them, Father. We repent, we confess our sins, and we cry out to you because you hear our prayers. We say, oh God, may your will be done in our lives. May you produce fruit in our lives that is honoring to you. And may you activate and animate us so that we will say no to wickedness and yes to righteousness. Would you stir our minds to act with wisdom to see what is true and what is not to turn away from ourselves, to turn toward you, and to help continue to grow as we serve in this family that you have put together under your headship and under your lordship. May you find us serving you well. And so to that end we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.